0: was a treat. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and uh, welcome back, I'm sure, in in many cases to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're not sitting here uh, in this theatre on those, I hope, very comfortable seats, but in a boat looking down into deep water and looking down at what would be familiar grand buildings here in Edinburgh, or maybe looking across to uh, to the Castle Rock there and seeing it encased in in ice and, and snow, uh, to imagine a world where knowledge has been largely lost or forgotten or abandoned or destroyed, a world where the words you hear most often are words like long ago, long, long ago, once there was, once there were. Uh, that approximately is, is the world that you encounter in a wonderful new novel called The Story of General Dan and Mara's Daughter, Griot and the Snow Dog. I spent a lot of time last night wondering how I'd introduce the author of that book. I thought I'd talk about previous books like Martha Quest and The Syrian Experiments, The Grass Is Singing. And as time went on, and I never get round to writing these things down, I boiled what I was thinking um, down and down and down until eventually I came down to quite simply two words. And the two words are, Doris Lessing, welcome to Edinburgh. (laughs) Or well, welcome, welcome back to Edinburgh, of course. In, in your yes, case as well.
1: I think I've been at nearly all the festival book festivals, excepting last year when I couldn't come because I had various ailments. So I'm very pleased to be back.
0: It's always very nice to uh, re-encounter a beautiful woman you met once at a party. And <laughs> I first met Doris at a very strange party, indeed. Uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago which was given for Doris and Norman Mailer, which seemed a very interesting combination (laughs) at at the time. Um, But we're also re-encountering two characters in this book. Your your regular readers will uh, will remember the names, Mara and Dan, because you've written about them before.
1: Well, Mara and Dan uh, was an adventure story, because I wanted to write an adventure story, which is the oldest story in the world, after all. And um, you have to have disadvantaged children with a bad stepmother or their captives or something. And they have to get out of their situation So they share force of character. And there has to be a bad villain. My villain is Kulik, who is truly horrible. And they have all kinds of adventures with people to help them and people who are against them. And what was interesting, as soon as you uh, set up adventure, all kinds of cliched situations just emerge from, the, from a story. Like suddenly I find the girl is captured into captivity and into a brothel, which apparently is one of the ancient uh, part, uh, necessary part of an adventure story. And anyway, we go in this uh, book from drought to wet. And the reason I was writing a drought because I'd just seen on my son John's farm drought at its worst, And I hope none of you ever see it. That's a real drought. The streams are dried up and the trees are dying and the birds are dying. It's all unspeakably awful. Dust, dust everywhere. So that's where this book started. But it ends up in the wet. And the adventure story has to have a more or less happy ending. I would say more or less. Because I would say it's a pretty um, um, doubtful happy ending with lots of trouble in store. Um, the reason why this is all um, it's not modern because you know it's because if you're writing a modern adventure story it has to be James Bond with helicopters and cars and blondes and things like that which I feel I swear this is not really women's thing I, I, I don't want to be unnecessarily sexist about it but I swear men like James Bond and Northern Women do. So I didn't want to write that story, so I got rid of um, Europe altogether by putting it under an ice age. So, um, <laughs> you know, as you know, um, Europe was buried under many, many feet of ice. So then you see, I'm left with my characters, and I'm very fond of them by now, up in the north of Africa, then called IFRIC. One of them is Dan. Now, what fascinated me, women hated Dan. Some of my friends said they just wouldn't speak to me about Dan because they hated him so much. Well, I was rather f- fond of Dan. Admittedly, he's rather mad, but however, one can't have everything. And um, so I start off with Dan, and I have to get rid of Mara because she would just be an impediment. And we have her daughter instead. And you see, writers are very ruthless. And we're back in the center. Now we, that is us as we sit here now, are the stuff of myth and legend. We are these wonderful people in the past who used to fly, used to get into the air machines and fly. Nobody really believes it, it's so improbable. And our civilization, everything, in little bits and pieces in the center, a bit of this and a bit of that. And the waters are rising because The ice age is going so we have all these cities our cities our great cities have been built when they knew the ice age was coming in the north of Africa on the permafrost but now that the uh, ice age is going the permafrost is melting so the cities go down 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 and so you can boat over the top of Paris or London and look down and they say they built so well then. These people in the future say so they these people were so wonderful. Look at their cities. So this story, which I have to say, I absolutely adored writing. You don't always adore what you write. It ends. At the chief a chief character is Grio, which is a from North Africa. It means uh, he's a storyteller, traditionally storyteller. Uh, he's a p- the praise singer for the king. He's, he melds just a little bit into the magician and into that area. And one of these characters is Grill And another character is my snow dog, who I absolutely adore. My lovely snow dog. You see, I was brought up with dogs and cats, and I can't have dogs and London. So I made myself up a dog. But unfortunately the book is over, so there's the end of my lovely dog. But I thought... <laughs> I wanted to take two little bits out of this um, book. One is about this dog. Because when you're writing about something, you have to have something in your mind, even if it doesn't really fit. And I was using... He has to be a really noble dog. So I was using my son John's dog, Seamus. He fell off a damn wall, he broke his hip, it was two miles from home and the dog came up and supported him all the way home and what was interesting about the story was that when my son got tired and had to stop the dog knew this and he would just lie down even and even sleep a little while John recovered and then by some kind of osmosis he knew he'd get up when they went on it took all morning to get back so this dog's this wonderful understanding you can have with animals. The great dog Seamus. So a lot of his characters, character went into uh, My Snow Dog. Now this is not scientific but I'm sure that when writers are thinking about something, maybe something quite different like a long dead dog, somehow it gets into your, your prose. You don't even know what's happening and something of that adds a a layer to it It, I mean no no one can prove anything but I'm convinced that the ghost of Seamus is somewhere in that book now the other thing I'd like to talk briefly about because all the news out of Africa is terrible all the they're corrupt and they're dictators and they're brutes like Mugabe and so on but I want to remember just briefly a man from the 50s in this story is a um, a girl, because the Alps, that's us, we're just a minority. We're always forgotten by history. She's got the most gorgeous golden hair, this girl. It's so beautiful, no one can believe it. And I have a scene where she is sitting and the soldiers come through and beg to touch her hair. But I took that from this man from Nyasaland, then Nyasaland, Malawi, a teacher who was teaching in North London, And long before there were many black people. And when he went into the class in the morning, it was a game, they'd say, Sir, sir, can we feel your hair? And then he'd sit down, and the entire class would go past and feel his hair. And then he could start teaching. This became enormously popular, and everyone in the entire school wanted to be there. Sir, sir, can we feel your hair? So I switched this out over to make this gorgeous princess locks have to tell you this man went back to Malawi to um, fight against Hastings Banda, one of the baddies of Africa, really very bad, and he spent his life chained, manacles chained outside his hut and he died of ill-treatment, neglect and brutality. But this was a very brave man and this is why I like to talk, you know they're, they're not all crooks and liars and corrupt, they can also be extremely brave men like this one, who I remember sometimes when I read about some other bloody dictator from Africa. I just mentioned it because it's nice to think about this. So these are the two little bits that I can easily talk about from Mm -hmm. General Dan.
0: There were a couple of things I wanted to, to ask you about. There are things that really sort of jumped out of the book. And one was something about mothers and children. And it's a book about forgetting the past and about managing to, to dream of a future as well and there are there are more than four mothers in the book but there are four mothers in particular who come into the book very early on there's Mara who's had a child and has then died, mm-hmm. uh, Dan doesn't know this, there is Kira who is carrying Dan's child, there is Cass who's lost the child mm-hmm. but her breasts are still mm-hmm. full of milk and there's Marianne who wants a child mm-hmm. with, uh, with I'm sorry you're not picking, you're not picking me up uh, and Marianthe, mm-hmm. who um, wants a child to keep Dan mm-hmm. by her. Um, and that seemed to me, those seemed to me that's the, the sort of key symmetry of, of the book, those those four mothers. I mean, is that something you're conscious of? Or is that something you. It's unconscious. Were, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it is unconscious. All these books are about refugees, and that's unconscious because I wasn't thinking like that when I wrote them. But people say to you, why? when you write books, they're often topical. Well, it's because you're thinking so much about something. They just get into your work, even when you don't intend them to. So my book, everybody in these two books, that's Mara and Dan and General Dan, they are all on the run from civil war, war, drought, fire. they were on the run. Like, and I was remembering a couple of days ago that after the Second World War, I remember a little paragraph it said um, there are now 10 million refugees in the world today this is terrible impossible of course it cannot go on and will never happen again well now it seems quite a moderate thing 10 million refugees now you can't pick up a paper without being more refugees so this is why just gets into your mind and you can't stop thinking about it. So this is how it's happened.
0: I suppose the other big theme of the book is, is, is climate change or background for the book is climate change. I mean our world as we know to our course is changing in all sorts of ways but physically it's changing. I mean, we, have, we have deserts or we have, mm-hmm. deserts are developing Where there was once green land. Uh, we've had droughts in the southeast of England. I mean we, we've, we've had to come to terms with that in a very short span of time.
1: Well you see these great swings of climate have always taken place. It's not new. What is new is we don't know what we are contributing to it. This is the question mark. We don't know. We we just don't know. But, you know, one of these previous ice ages, the great previous ice ages, they had the ice not merely over Europe or great parts of of, um, Northern America, but right the way down Africa. You know, the Mediterranean was once dry completely in one of these. The, the world is changing all the time so dramatically, and we always think that what we're living in is permanent, but it isn't. You see, and we, I think, it'd be a good idea if we got into the habit of thinking it isn't permanent. This is this is what is now, and we have to come to terms with that. My garden in London. It's got dust like a Sahara under every bush. It's been like that for over a year. When it rains, I get 17 drops. I say to my son, ah, oh, there are our 17 drops for today. Or we have a shower that goes whoosh. And everything is as dry as it was before. It's, and I was brought up in the middle of Africa. What we were doing? Saving water. Looking at the, is that a rain-bearing cloud? Is the rains come? Have the rains come yet? And now I'm back, exactly the same thing, worrying about the rain. It's very bad down there. Apparently, we're not having enough either. So about the climate change, we're too ignorant to know Mm -hmm. how much we do and how much is going to happen anyway.
0: There's a wonderful moment in the book where Dan sees a a map which is painted on an animal skin. Can you can you just tell me a bit about the the, the the geography of this world because we have the Middle Sea, we have the Bottom Sea, we have Europe and Africa, but what do these all correspond to? Well, what do mean? the Middle Sea presumably is the Mediterranean? The middle
1: Sea would be the Mediterranean. Uh, the Atlantic is over there. You know, I forgot what I called it. It can't be the Western Sea if they weren't thinking like that. We have the Nile over there, and. Um, Great deal of swamps and wet, all along w- where uh, in North Africa, where the um, permafrost is melting. So it's a wet, dank, dreary world that that uh, this this one is that General Dan and Mara's daughter are living in. It's quite different from the, the terrible drought of the first part of. Incidentally, about this um, Mara and Dan. What is interesting to me at least, and perhaps to other writers, um, I, ha- I adored my little brother when he was little. And I, you tend to forget things because we didn't get on all that well when we, he was grown up. So there was this great passion for my little brother. And when I came to write this book, suddenly it all emerged. And I used to dream, dream about this. And I used to dream night after night of what I was going to write day, which doesn't often happen it's um, so halfway through that book you can say I wrote it most of it until um, the laws of adventure stories came into play because they do you know so what was I going to say I was going to say something and you'll have to prompt me with something gone, gone out of my silly head well, I'm getting old and for, very silly you
0: know Hardly that. Forgetting ironically is, is one of the things that the, that the book is also about when, when Dan meets the, uh, the fisher people on these islands and relatively rich islands um, in the sea uh, they know nothing but the more worrying thing is they don't want to know anything more than they need to know for their their daily sustenance. They have no curiosity left anymore. I thought that was very powerful.
1: Well, right throughout that book, uh, these two, Mara and Dan, are going through um, cultures and civilizations that are going to end and they know it. But the people living in it don't want to know it. And I have to tell you, this is how I feel very often. That I don't know why, but I've got this powerful sense of things ending. Which of course, could be neurotic rubbish, for all I know, but or not, I don't know. I think see this civilization of ours is a very, very lightly based one it's not it's very precarious, and I don't think we realise how precarious it is I mean in all kinds of ways, it's precarious. it could easily disappear uh, James Lovelock talks about. A future will be a few warlords and some breeding women, and that will be humanity for a while. seems to me extremely likely because we're so careless and stupid. We do everything with such stupidity. We scrape the bottom of the seas away, and we don't care. We don't care about what we do to anything. We just I'm told that if you drive across the uh, Atlantic in a, a low boat, the seas are full of plastic we do this all the time and everything as if as if we're imbeciles which i think we are actually we certainly behave in a very stupid way so i think and in all kinds of ways like for example the crops we grow we get grow fewer and fewer kinds of crop of different kinds with a smaller and smaller seed base you only need a couple of epidemics and that's that i mean there are books about this but no one takes any notice there are fewer and fewer apples, corn, maize, et cetera, et cetera. This is one thing, and uh, uh, reliance on computers is another, which I think is designed to bring us down, because um, you know, computers can get ill, they can have viruses, they uh, can be extremely incompetent and fail, and yet put all our reliance on these stupid machines. And I think in all kinds of ways, we're asking for it, in my view. so. It was very interesting after I wrote Mara and Dan, somebody said in the newspaper, quite by chance, that um, sometimes he thought, I don't know who it was, that we ought to be making a record somewhere of our civilization so that later people would know what we were like. That's my uh, center already described. So, I mean, it's not just in my mind, it's other people's mind. And that's interesting, a feeling of um, our precariousness.
0: Well, tell us about the centre. What is the centre in, uh, in the story of General Dan?
1: Well, people after us, us here now, because um, they built the cities which uh, then thought they thought were going to be permanent. They didn't know about the Ice Age ending. Uh, and they thought, well, now we're going to fill, um, we're going to provide a record of our artefacts. And they, they, make all the, they made all this into the, in the sand, which as you know is a good preservative. And um, so at some point somebody after us, but before them find these things and put them into a big, big centre. All our artefacts. So we have a scene in, in Dan, General Dan, where they have a black sort of wand with numbers on sort of thick dense material and Dan doesn't know what it is now we know of course it's how you fix a television but how many thousands of years do you have to of a culture before you know automatically that this is the thing to fix a television now Dan who is just as bright as you and me sits there looking at me saying what is this what is it because he can disappear so easily he thinks just like that I think
0: well you had an experience this morning with uh, what the characters in this book call sky skimmers uh, aeroplanes which by the, by this time no longer fly, they have to be pushed down the, pushed down the, the sand dunes so that's a, another example. I imagine not the most comfortable of journeys from Heathrow this morning.
1: The journey was fine but getting to the aeroplane was not fine, it's total chaos it was a very good natured chaos and everyone was delightful and coping the best they could—not very well. Chaos. You know why it happens so easily, doesn't it? Well-ordered Heathrow suddenly practically comes to a stop. So uh, this this kind of thing can happen so quickly. This is—I think—this is just what I think. I think we should spend more time thinking how quickly things can stop, how quickly we can stop them ending. And maybe it doesn't even matter if it ends. We're not a very attractive species, are we? Well, it's an extremely,
0: extremely attractive audience. You must admit. So
1: just this is the best of the we best. We what we do, is to break your heart. We just squander things so terribly. I know you, the audience is fine. Mm-hmm. We are fine. We're fine. We're Absolutely. very good.
0: I'm as fine as I've ever been. I Absolutely. Have to
1: but I would say, as a whole, we're pretty deplorable.
0: You've touched on uh, the background to that experience in, uh, in, in Heathrow this morning, which is shared by hundreds of thousands of people, in, in The Good Terrorist, which is some years ago now. I mean, I don't know whether you've revisited that book in any way, but how much of the, the kinds of psychology and the kinds of background that you were writing about then do you see coming to pass now, however many years on?
1: No, I think that's the past. There was a time when the whole of Europe and America were full of revolutionary groups, so-called and I happen to know one or two of them so I wrote now just this week I had from America a friend all this is by chance who happened to know those American uh, groups the Weathermen and the oh god black Panthers, the a whole lot of them a whole range of that those groups and uh, he's writing about them he said in the book that I had said which I've forgotten Don't waste your time. All these people are going to be back being well-off middle-class people in a very short time, I said to him, which, of course, is true. But what is interesting is that looking at them now, they were a bit crazy. Now, in my book, The Good Terrorist, I have a girl called Alice, very much based on a a real person. That is, uh, you know... He'd weep all night about the whales but say oh I have to get rid of 40,000 bourgeois when we come into power, this kind of thing um, which is a sort of set of mind of the left, the worst kind of left what was I going to say, it's oh, yes, about this um, she's mad, Alice in fact is completely round the bend but nobody noticed it, nobody ever said this girl is crazy any more than at the time of the weathermen and the Black Panthers and a whole lot of them. Anybody said these people are mad, which they were. Alice is mad, which is, just confirms my view that if people are mad in religion or politics, nobody even notices. And I mean, just think what we're putting up with, right? <laughs> Round the bend, <laughs> these people are. Just look at them now. Well, let's leave that. So <laughs>
0: Before we drift any further towards treason, um yes. <laughs> Perhaps it would be a good moment to ask you, are you, would you be happy to read from General Dan
1: Well, I could read a bit about. Yeah. This is the boy, Griot. But of course, now my book is closed. Due to the vicissitudes of today, I'll never be able to find it again when I. Wait. Which passage is it? I don't know where it is. Hang on. If I can't find it in one minute, we'll forget it. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. I actually sat there and looked it up. Grew uh, was, a, a was a boy soldier and um, like so many now. And I'm not going to be able to find it. Which verses you said? You're asking me, but I can't find it. <laughs> How should I know when I... The thing is, I did find it. Um, oh, yes, now I found it. Okay, right. Right.
0: There you You've marked it.
1: No, I haven't. I don't want to... You see, you can read for too long and then people get very bored. I don't If um, very much. Yes, they do, yes. Right. No, I can't... Yeah, how's it got to? It's, um... It really is infuriating. I think we should better forget this. It's ridiculous.
0: Would you read a bit from the
1: beginning? But that hasn't got the interesting bits in it. <laughs> That's just where I'm setting it. I'm setting the scene. I have Dan, who is very suicidal and very crazy. He has found a, a spit of rock right over the, the middle sea. And as he's gone to lie there, there's great sheets of water falling from the... Um, from the Middle Sea, the Mediterranean, down over what will be the Straits of Gibraltar. He lies there and he watches, and he sees that the fishes come over down to the Middle Sea from the from the Atlantic. So there is Dan, who is really more than a bit crazy. A slight move to one side or the other, a mere hand's breadth, and Dan must fall. He lay stretched like a diver, and his fingers curled over an extremity of crumbling black rock, the tip of a shelf whose underside had been blasted away by wind and by water, and which from a distance looked like a dark finger pointing at the cataract pouring over the edge of the black rocks to become at once mists and spray that whirled and shifted, hypnotizing him with movement, a cliff of thundering white. He was deaf for the noise and fancied he heard voices calling to him from the thunder though he knew they were cries of seabirds. Lengths of white falling falling water filled all that side of his vision, and if he then shifted his gaze to look ahead, lifting his head from his arm, far away across the gulf he was poised above, those low clouds were snow and ice, white, white on white, and he was breathing a fresh sea air that cleared his lungs of the dull, damp smell of the sienta. It was only when he left the center, which is sinking into the marsh and its marshy edges, he realized how he hated the smell of the place. And the look of the marshy land, all greys, drab greens, and the flat gleam of water. He came here as much for the fresh, lively smell as for the swirling movement that filled him with energy, white, black, and above him the blue of a cold sky. But if he shifted to the very tip of a spit of rock, letting his arms dangle on the side of it and looked down, far below there was the glint and glide of water made blue by the sly. This tip of rock could crumble and fall, and he with it. And a thought accelerated him. So then Dan goes down to the middle sea and finds people who are completely unaware that they're very present islands are going to be submerged in water Dan knows that he can't make anyone believe it because nobody wants to believe it so there we are
0: How could you not be drawn in by that? <laughs> well since neither chair nor on this occasion author are properly prepared for this maybe we should um, we should open it up uh, I'd love to hear some, some questions and there are a couple, I think one on each side, a couple of radio microphones. And can I ask you, if you put your hand up and I don't take you first time, leave your hand up and uh, I'll get you subsequently. And also to say that uh, Doris Lessing is going to be signing copies of uh, General Dan in the signing tent, which is left and left again when we, when we finish and there'll be an opportunity to speak to her further then if I don't manage to take your question. But uh, who, would, who would like to ask Doris something? Gentleman right up here in the middle. I use the terms gentleman and lady loosely, obviously, in every case.
2: It's a a very general
3: question. I'd just like to ask who you read to inspire you?
1: I think I'd have to go back to what I was reading in my twenties, you see, because that still inspire me now. The great authors I reread. I'm just rereading Tolstoy after a very long time and thinking, You're so bloody marvelous, why do any of us bother? You know, (laughs) I'm always going back to reread. Well,
2: I
0: mean, that prompts an interesting supplementary question, if you don't mind me piggybacking yours. And given this, this squandering of resources that you're uh, th- that is the background to, to your book I mean is there any feeling and given the fact that you go back to Tolstoy it was effectively two centuries ago um, is there a feeling that the imagination is running out that we're running out of ways of imagining the world
1: No I don't think so uh, I think it's a rather well it's a silver age for the novel we have enormous numbers of very good novels being written you can't possibly keep up with them all that that's an interesting change because once upon a time, someone interested in literature would keep up roughly with what was going on everywhere. Now there's no way you can touch even a fraction of it, and it's very lively, very varied, exciting. It's always new. So I think from that point of view, we're doing pretty well.
0: Mm. There's a question right down at the front here. I'm not sure where the There it is. Just three in. Thank you
1: actually two questions. Uh, There are a lot of people who agree with you about the way we're going. Uh, First question is, what do we do to bring the politicians online? And secondly, I've just been reading the first two uh, autobiographical books that you wrote. Are you ever going to complete it? Is there ever going to be a third one? Sorry, the second part. Your autobiography. What? Uh, two autobiographical books. Yeah. Uh, are you ever going to write a third one no. to bring no. us up to date? About politicians, you know, no one can do anything about them as far as I I mean, they know the facts just as well as we do. But um, some people seem more interested in becoming famous for the wars they start and from doing anything about the situation we're in. The um, About um, the two... Um, Autobiographies. I can't write the third, because a third takes me to a time in my life um, when I was a now obsolete um, figure, the, um, the house mother, the Earth mother, that's what I was in the '60s accumulated young people. Um, interesting. Most of my, my son's friends he couldn't stand me, so he was off somewhere. But I, all his friends were in my house and all. There were vast quantities of, of young people. And I can't write about this because they're now all grown up and some of them are even famous. How can I, I can't do that. It's a great pity. But there you are, that's life. So I made, I wrote The Sweetest Dream. So I wanted to write about the 60s and, and without mentioning these characters. And I think I got the 60s in The Sweetest Dream. I think that's more or less right. Uh, but um, it's a pity about the rest, you know. After all, I have written quite a lot of books, I don't have to wait because I haven't written another.
0: Mm. Any other questions? All um, on this side today, about halfway up, and then the gentleman behind you. After that,
3: thanks. I was fascinated to hear you talking about Alice in the Good Terrorist, um, which is a book that I love, and and she for me is one of the great monsters of of modern fiction, um, and all the more so because you you as you say it, it takes a long time to realise how mad she is, and and you make her empathetic um, in an extraordinary way that I've never quite fathomed, and I've read the book several times. Um, but and, uh, and also again, that she she's an evil mother figure, which again is something we don't see often in in modern fiction, but fascinated to hear that you say she was based on a real person. I mean, uh, one could see that in that era uh, in the Bader Meinhof and other groups, there were people bourgeois people um, who became those figures. Uh, can we know a little more about the real person? Did she survive? Did she return to being a bourgeois a bourgeois figure?
1: very much so <laughs> I think I'd better leave that fairly dangerous area, um, did you say there was an evil mother
3: well th- I, t- I saw Alice as an evil mother mother ah, figure in the because she is the mother of of the the, the den of anarchists and and indeed its it's maternal instincts mm-hmm. that you use to make her empathetic i think
1: <laughs> well i'll tell you how it started off this character, Alice, was known to a friend of mine very well known since she was a little girl and this friend of mine rang up and said, have you heard that someone has uh, bombed um, Harrods? Uh, and the IRA say it's not them. And we are going back a bit. And I joked and I said, well, we know who bombed that was Alice. Because Alice was a member of, a, of an amateur revolutionary group. Um, you know, you have to wear certain clothes, and you have to use a certain language and then you became a revolutionary. There were groups like this all over. Incidentally, I had very interesting letters after that book. Some from Ireland. One said, in order to become a revolutionary in Ireland, you have to wear the clothes, you know, the jeans, et cetera, And you have to speak the language and you need never, ever do another political act. You are revolutionary. It's, and this is true of a lot of, of groups everywhere. That was then, it's gone, this particular phenomenon. So Alice was... Um, yes, because she was so incompetent. What I said was she is so incompetent, she, they, they probably did it because it was an awful mess for Harrod's bombing. So when I put the phone down, I thought, my God, this is really something I have to write. And I knew some groups at that time who were squatting and uh, revolutionary groups in quotes, I just couldn't leave it, so I I wrote that book. Usually, if I'm writing a book, I think about it for a very long time. But this one, I just, I simply rushed into it because it was as if I knew such about it. And there's another thing. You know, the set of mind of a communist group is not all that different from a a, um, a sloppy terrorist one. Another letter I had from Gatley said, I don't know if you know, but you have describing the Red Brigades, in this book, before they became competent killers. They, and they, a phrase which has haunted me ever since, they got taken over by the language they used, which seems to me marvellous, I think, about because we all get taken over by the language we use without even thinking about it, particularly in politics. So this... Um, and another thing, a man turned up actually in my my flat then, said that he had been a member of the Red Brigades before they had become competent and killers. He said, by his luck, he'd had to leave. I've forgotten what took him out. He said, otherwise, he'd, he said, I will now be dead or in prison. Luck, you see. So he said the same thing. He said, this was what. The Red Brigades were like this kind of sloppy amateurish and obsessed with money. Because the interesting thing about squatting people and the revolutionaries, they're always obsessed with money, how to get it, and how to keep it, and so on. Because um, I used to drop into a house not all that far from me, um, because I knew one of the people, uh, one of the squatters. And you'd sit down at the supper table. And what were they talking about, these? these, um, They were revolutionaries, naturally. They were talking about money. That's what they talked about. They were obsessed. How to get it and how not to get it and how not to lose it and how to spend it. And this was quite interesting, you know, when you think of the um, ideals behind all this.
0: There was another question, I think, just in two rows in front there. I'm sorry I missed you last time. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
2: You've spoken very eloquently about the decline of our society and the self-destructive... Impulse that humanity has. And I was just curious in, in your broad experience if you feel there are any ways that society has moved forward. Anything we can
0: do
1: about it? Anything you've seen? Has there any been aspect? any aspect that's been positive in our development in your experience? Well, I don't think we seem to have upset, uh, progressed much with um, the environment. We don't seem to be, have stopped much. but you know I was thinking this morning this war in Lebanon ceased far today you know probably a hundred years ago no one would have bothered to stop the fighting this is an improvement isn't it we really care about what goes on probably because it's so dangerous for ourselves that's another thing but even so does it matter the fact is the fighting is, is about to stop in Lebanon and this is a new thing it's a good thing isn't it
0: there's somebody right here in the... Mi- I'm sorry, someone on this side. Gentleman here, three rows back, and then I'll take you next.
3: Hi. and a lot of your short stories, your long short stories and your short novels, you seem to manage to give so much texture to the lives, as if the books could be three, four times longer sometimes. I think especially of uh, To Room 19, long story to Room 19. Could you say something about the way you handle time transitions in your your which stories novels.
1: Which, which in ah, well which we're stories. going back a long time with Roman to Roman 19. That is a story which I, I find it hard to talk about because it's, um, it's as if somebody else wrote it, you know. It is so, um, it is such a depressing story. And I have to tell you, I was in Germany, talking to some kids, in a, a school kid, university, early university and um, they brought up r- r- this story and one of the girls stood up and said that was a very irresponsible story Mrs. Lessing why didn't you not send your characters to the marriage guidance <laughs> so, <laughs> I said but there would have been no story I have to say this exchange is a very very old theme I said, there would have been no story. They said, no, we don't think well of you, and this was translated in German, you know, this is not good, we don't admire this, and you should have sent them to marriage counsel and marriage guidance, and then it wouldn't have happened. So you see, (laughs) there's something about that story which is very bad, and I know it. What was the matter with these people? Nothing. What was she committing suicide over? And yet this story has been anthologized, 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 and wins prizes and God knows what. And yet I'm ashamed of it. (laughs) It's a terrible story. (laughs) It's a very, look, I don't know what, I swear I've got no idea where it came from. I don't know. Look, it may have been, I know it's a good story and all that, but it is quite frightening, you know. Anyway, look.
0: There's a question right up here in the middle, if we can get a microphone across. Just here, four or five rows back, if you put your hand up, that's it. Hello,
2: Hello, good afternoon, it is a pleasure for me to meet you for the first time. I've always thought that you looked like my mother. But I think you are much attractive than here, and uh, you look more, much more lively and I- imaginative. So my question is, uh, talking about the, the one of the topics of your book, you've been speaking about. Um, uh, you uh, you 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 said that uh, you were telling uh, t- telling us about women on the run. Uh, I would like to ask you if you think that uh, how do you imagine these women in the future?: yes, sir, The women on the run
1: Women,
2: women on the run, women refugees. refugees. How do you see these women in the future? Do you but think women.
1: this is not about women. Everybody in these two books is a refugee on the run, but not women particularly. I don't see that why women are worse. Why is it worse for women to be on the run than men? I don't see this. Why? Tell me. Yes. I always get tetchy about this, because I don't see this prejudice in favor of women, that um, if they're having a bad time, it's much worse for them than for, let's say, this man Grill, who's a, a boy soldier, aged 10. Why is it worse?
2: So you don't think that women and children are the victims of words still nowadays? No. No. You well. we say
1: they're worse victims? Yes. No. Why, why are they? Look at all the young men being killed, just being killed in Lebanon and in Israel. I mean, this is are they not to be cared about because they happen to be men? I just don't see this at all.
0: Sense, you're going to have to agree to disagree yes, about, about that in, in, in specifics. Um, somebody else, if some kind person in the front row could tell me what the time is, because I'm fabulously bad at timekeeping. Thank you very much. I missed that. I thought it was somebody. Here she is. Now, where was that hand? Right up in, right up in the middle there, on the on the left, in pink or cerise, I think it is.
2: Um, Lionel Shriver's recent novel. We need to talk about Kevin has been compared to your The Fifth Child, which, when I read it, uh, haunted me for years. I wonder if you have any comment on the comparison, or if not, what you think
1: now about what you wrote in The Fifth Child. What what was what being. I haven't read it, I'm awfully sorry. Could I you don't... therefore say something about what you now think about what you wrote, The Fifth Child, which after all came long before this recent popular novel? Well, I wanted to write a book um, on uh, a, a version of the changeling myth, which is uh, in most cultures, particularly in Northern Europe. I simply wanted to do that version. And there were a lot, you know, when you write a novel, there are all kinds of different things contribute to the writing. One of them was that um, a man called Lauren Isney from America, now unfairly forgotten, he wrote a paragraph which stuck in my mind. He said, he was walking up from the seashore, I think in Maine, in the dusk, and ahead on the road, he saw a girl who turned her head and he said, but that is a Neanderthal girl. This was some time ago, of course. He said, this girl could have lived in the village for many years. No one would have said anything more than, oh, well, uh, Jane has got a funny, very funny head, you know. No one would have... And this one really, I swear, even now it makes a shiver run down my back. That that, there can be... Um, and, oh, there's a lot of talk in the newspapers around about them, the, particularly the popular science newspapers. Were there any Neanderthals left now? Reply: no, they were all gone, they were done away with by us, you see. Well okay, so they're very sure about that aren't they? However for the sake of this book I imagined that a, a good middle-class family gave birth to a, a, a baby that actually went back many thousands of years Uh, to um, something like a dwarf or a goblin because these little people are in again in all stories and I personally believe that once upon a time in the world there were little people much smaller than what we have now and um, we have given them, that they have survived in our imagination as dwarves and uh, goblins and I mean, there's a dwarf practically in every garden in England. Doesn't that strike anyone as amazing? Why? Why is that? Why? It's very odd. Anyway, so into this good family comes this creature who is perfectly viable in his own environment, which was probably in a cave a long time ago. But he destroys the family because he's not civilized in any way. So... Um, Sometimes I write with great enjoyment, but that one was horrible writing that and I don't know why. It was very frightening writing that. I don't know why. Anyway, that has been what is interesting, that book is popular in schools. When I go to schools, teachers tell me the kids that adolescents like this book. And which is odd, you know, and In one school in North London, um, which had more coloured, whatever the word should be, Indian and Asian, etc., than white, which is interesting. Uh, Another interesting thing was the girls were much more um, into books than the boys, which I believe is common. And there was an extremely beautiful girl, absolute enchantress, of a girl about sixteen, I think probably from Thailand or something. And she said this was her favourite book, and I say at last tell me why. And she said, why? I am Ben. (laughs) I said, now come on. You are a very beautiful girl of 16. You are not. I am Ben. So I thought about this, and I thought, well, all adolescents know that they're clumsy, awkward, ridiculous, and absolutely absurd. So they identify with this clumsy creature from the past, which makes some sense, I suppose. Even if you are a, a flower plum girl of 60 it, it doesn't make sense with your eyes but it does psychologically
0: anyway one more question I think we have time for that there's somebody right up near the top here thank you Doris I'd like to give you an opportunity to maybe end on an optimistic note, um, I was really intrigued by what you said about um, dreaming chapters of your last book and the fact that A ghost, perhaps, had come to settle in the pages, Seamus's ghost. Do you feel, and is is this explored in any of your writings, that there's another level of consciousness that humanities can tap into? You you yourself seem to have a a deep appreciation of it. And is it something that you see spreading? And is it something that you can
1: see as giving us hope for our our next wave of society? I think it's probably true. But what is interesting is, if you're a person, like many people here, I'm sure... Who have experiences, like with dreaming perhaps. But it's not um, shared with other people, and they think it's very strange. Have I got time for three sentences? Um, in Dan, I got stuck in this book because um, it, it, the whole thing went out of shape. And I was, say, for God's sake, give me a dream, which I only half humorously do because well, I instantly dreamt that night that um, I was standing at the edge not me but standing at the edge of this marshy pool and there were these three half brown white dogs and it went straight into the book and one of them became my my lovely dog but that was an absolutely direct contribution from my unconscious which I think you can develop you know if you try it you can't lose anything, right? Can you?
0: That is a very nice place to end. I'm always alarmed when the lights, they always think I've had a stroke, but that's the, <laughs> that's how they tell us that our, uh, our time is up. Thank you all for coming. Thank, thank you for you. Your, uh, your patience. And thank you for Doris blessing.: thank, thank you so much.